Before we look to God's Word today, I just want to bring your attention to a couple of items that are in your worship guide, um, and uh, one that we'll talk about at the end of the service with our block party that's coming up next week. Uh, But before we do that, I want to first of all take a moment to recognize uh, someone in our fellowship who this is their last Sunday with us, at least for a while. Uh, Miss Ashley, if you would just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you stand and embarrass yourself. Many of you know Ashley Holmes. She's home folk. She grew up here at Central Park um, and committed her life to ministry and has already been serving in, in uh, certain capacities, but she will begin tomorrow as the minister of children at Auburn Baptist Church in Tupelo, Mississippi, about an hour from my hometown in Columbus. Uh, you're going to love Mississippi, I hope, uh, as I do. And uh, we are, we've been honored to have Ashley home with us for a couple of months, singing in the choir serving in Vacation Bible School and many other capacities, and we're going to miss you, Ashley. Uh, but we, uh, we always believe, at least I do as pastor, and I think we believe as a church, and whenever we have someone who leaves our fellowship to go and serve in some capacity, whether that's a short-term mission trip, whether that's committing their life full-time to uh, overseas missions, or whether that's full-time ministry in some vocational capacity that we send them out with our blessings, and so we do so, Ashley, and we look forward to seeing you in here in the reports when you come home. Thanks for being here with us. Also, um, just wanted to bring your attention that today is a very, very important day for us as a church. We have a very strategic opportunity to serve in our community in a couple of ways this afternoon. As many of you know, um, this is the final week before school begins in our community. And uh, on Wednesday, Thursday this week, a number of our students are going to be heading back to their schools and their elementary schools as well as in their junior high, middle school, high schools. We have a partnership with Austinville Elementary School in which we've been asking you for the last month or so to help uh, bring school supplies to donate to a school supply distribution. And we'll be doing that this afternoon at Austinville Elementary. And we're asking you as, as people, if you would just give a couple hours of your time this afternoon to come out Help us distribute those supplies, greet the students and the parents that are coming there, just give them a little bit of what Central Park Baptist Church has in in the love of Christ and the gospel. And so we're asking you to come out and help us with that. If you could help us by being there by about 2.30, if you would like to volunteer, that will help us to be able to get things set up and to pray before the students and the children arrive. And then that'll be happening between 3.30 and 5.30. So if you can help us out by being at Austinville Elementary School, we'll see you about 2.30. If you can't stay the whole time, stay as long as you can. But we hope that that will give us an opportunity to start some gospel conversations with some of those parents and children there. Also, this evening, we partner with a ministry here that works in our local schools to help advance the gospel called First Priority. And First Priority has an opportunity every Sunday before school starts to pray over every campus in Morgan and Lawrence County. And so we have people who are going to be at every single one of the schools in the city uh, praying through First Priority. And we want Central Park Baptist Church to go out and engage in praying for our schools. Specifically, we will be as a church partnering at two schools today. One will be Austinville Elementary School 
and the other will be at Julian Harris Elementary School, just because we have people who work with First Priority on both of those campuses. And so if you'd like to pray with your Central Park family, many of us will be at those two schools, but you are not obligated to go to one of those. If you would rather go to a school that is closer to your home, one that is very strategic to where you live, then we encourage you to go there. And when you go there, you'll find brothers and sisters in Christ from other churches around this area who will be there. It's simply just a prayer walk around our schools. It'll be very simple. They'll give you a prayer guide. They'll have a word of prayer for everybody. And then they'll turn you loose to go pray. And when you're done praying, you can leave and go back home. But I can think of no more effective or better thing that we as the people of God can do for our students and for our teachers before school begins than to lift them up in prayer. And so you can be a part of that tonight at 6 o'clock at either Austinville or at Julian Harris or school that is close to you. With that being said, the last thing I would like to do before we look to God's Word this morning is I would like to recognize our school administrators, our teachers, and our students that will be heading back to school this week and have a special prayer for you as you do that. So if you are a teacher, if you're an administrator, or if you're a student who is not necessarily excited about going back to school this week, but at some point in time, we'll be going back to school this week. Would you just stand for a second so that we can see you and have a prayer with you, please? All right. Let's pray over these students and teachers and faculty. All right. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to, to pray for our schools. And we thank you that you have not only placed students from Central Park Baptist Church into schools all throughout this area, God, but you've placed godly teachers godly administrators, godly secretaries, people who love you, who love your church, who love your word as gospel ambassadors to those campuses. And so we pray for the students that will be going to school this week. We pray, God, you will strengthen them in their faith. We pray that you will protect them as they face many challenges that, that, will, that will come at them, both in their, in their personal faith as well as in their walk with Jesus Christ this week. We pray, God, you would just give them courage and boldness and help them to walk onto those campuses with a, with a biblical conviction. And we pray for our teachers, our administrators that are serving in those schools, God. We pray that as they begin with a, with a new year and a clean slate with these students, Father, we pray that they won't just go to do a job that, that pays them a salary, God, but they would go as missionaries to a campus with, with dozens and dozens, hundreds of students that need to know the hope of Jesus Christ. For some of the students that will be on our campuses this year, their teacher may be the only real Christian that they ever meet. So, Father, we pray for our teachers and, and those who are working in our schools, God, that you would empower them to be ambassadors to their schools as well, Father. Encourage them on those days when they get discouraged and they need your strength, Father. And we thank you for all these things, knowing that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ goes before us in each and every one of these situations. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 10 this morning. As David said, we are wrapping up our sermon series. We've been looking at this summer on the, the parables of Jesus. Now, we haven't looked at all the parables of Jesus. There are some 40 to 50 parables, depending upon how you classify them in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. 
But we've specifically looked at about 10 or 11 parables that, that, that are strategic to us as the people of God. And today, we're going to be looking at one in Luke chapter 10, one of the most familiar parables that Jesus told. But while many are familiar with the elements of the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, I would submit to you that most people misunderstand the central truth that Jesus was trying to communicate to us. Before we look at God's Word this morning and before we read this parable, I want us to think about a reflective question. And, and so you're going to follow along with your notes. I'll try to, to point you out to when we come to places where there are fill-in-the-blanks. This is not in your notes. It's just a question for you to think about, and that is this. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If we believe that, if we firmly believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who would believe it, then how is that power of salvation manifested or demonstrated in the life of a believer? Let me say that again. If the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, and we know that that's true, how is that manifested or demonstrated in the life of a Christian? In other words, how do we give outward evidence of the inward transformation of the gospel? How do people know that Jesus has actually saved us? That's the tension that's being resolved in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable, well known by many people in our world, is often very confused in exactly what the point of it is. The term Good Samaritan has become a very commonplace term in our language to describe someone who does good deeds for others, often for strangers. You'll hear about something that would happen in a secular news story about some man who was, who was being robbed and, and someone came to their aid or, or a wreck and somebody stopped to help them and, and they always talk about a good Samaritan stopped to do this good deed for these strangers. And if you ask the average American, and I would submit if you ask the average church attender to describe the meaning of the parable of the good Samaritan, they would likely answer with something like this. Jesus wanted to teach us that we should be kind and compassionate and commit to helping people in need. The average person, if you said, what's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? They would say, Jesus wanted to us to understand that we should be kind, compassionate, and commit to helping people in need. But is that really the point of the parable? Because I believe it goes much deeper than that. I believe, as we're going to see in just a second, as we look at the context, that this parable is a parable about the gospel, and it's a parable about the outward manifestations of being inwardly transformed by Jesus Christ. Malcolm Gladwell is a New York Times best-selling author who wrote a book many years ago called The Tipping Point. And in that book, he talks about an interesting experiment involving the parable of the Good Samaritan. He described a research project by two professors at Princeton University. They wanted to see how well people put spiritual truths into action in a given environment under a given set of circumstances. And so these two professors gathered together a group of seminary students at Princeton University Seminary and asked each of them to prepare a short extemporaneous talk on a given biblical theme. They were assigned in these groups different themes that they were to prepare a talk on. They were told before, right now, what we want you to do is to, is to, is to prepare a short talk and in just a few minutes you're going to be going to give that talk in a lecture hall to a group of people. Some were assigned to speak on 
the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Others were asked to talk about the relevance and the purpose of professional ministry as a religious vocation because they were seminary students. What's, why is, is, is religious vocation a relevant thing in our culture and society? They were given a few minutes to prepare their talk and then they were told that they were to go across campus to a lecture hall to deliver that. But as they were leaving, some of those students were told that they were already late and that they were expected to have been there a few minutes before. Others were told that they had plenty of time to get there. In each and every case, as those students left and went to go give their lecture, they walked, as they walked towards their destination, they came across a man in an alley who was slumped over, groaning and coughing, and obviously in need. And the purpose of the experiment was to see, would these students who were going to give a lecture on vocational ministry and helping others in the parable of the Good Samaritan, would they stop and actually help someone? And they wanted to see what factors would contribute to the desire to actually stop and help the man, to put the parable into action. And what they discovered was that many of these students committed to vocational ministry who were about to give a talk on the relevance of the parable of the Good Samaritan still failed to stop and help someone in obvious need if the personal inconvenience of doing so was too hard. This exercise that that Gladwell talks about in his book demonstrates a very important principle that while most of us may fully understand the requirements of God's Word, putting them into action when it's personally inconvenient is sometimes a different matter. While many of us really understand what God wants of us in His Word, when it becomes inconvenient for us to put that into action, oftentimes we fall short. Because here's the problem. As fallen human beings... All of us attempt to redefine what God's Word says so that we can comfortably fit within its requirements. It's a condition that we have as, as fallen individuals. That while we may fundamentally know what God's Word says, we, we somewhat redefine it in order to comfortably fit within its requirements and feel like we've done what God has called us to do. We may know what God has said, but when we try to redefine it in a way to say we have conformed to it literally while we disobey it fundamentally. And this goes all the way back to the first temptation in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Eve, and the first words that the serpent said to Eve were what? Do you remember? It wasn't, don't you want to eat that fruit? The first words that the serpent said to Eve were, did God really say? Is that really what God said? I don't think that's really what God meant by that. And this is what happens in this particular parable when an expert in the law comes to ask Jesus the most important question of all, which is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this begins the encounter that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So with that being said, let's look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 28, no, 26, that says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? Jesus answers the man's question with a question. Two questions, actually. What is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand what the law says? The law tells you how to have eternal life. How do you understand it? And the lawyer answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Sounds very familiar. We know this as the greatest commandment. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus knew that this was the opportunity. He replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You then go and do likewise. Again, we're very familiar with the story, but many of us forget that the whole impetus for this story was an encounter between a man, an expert in the law, and Jesus about the question of eternal life and what, how do we gain eternal life and specifically how does that look in, in our life? How do, we, how do we demonstrate love for God and love for our neighbor? So let's look at that for a second. The question that precipitated this encounter in the parable was the question in which this man decided to put Jesus to the test. Likely, he isn't really seeking truth from Jesus as much as he is trying to see if Jesus Christ fits within his personal religious beliefs. And knowing this man well, when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? What do you understand? Now, every God-fearing Jew knew from the time they were young and being raised the answer to that question. Every God-fearing Jew was taught from an early age to quote the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and also the commandment in Leviticus chapter 18. And that's exactly what this man does. This man's response is the exact same response to someone who came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gave that because he had been taught as a young man, that's the greatest commandment. All the law and the prophets are, are summed up in those two verses. And so this young man had been taught all of his life to quote that. And the lawyer and Jesus agree. Keeping the law to love God completely and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this every time, you will have eternal life. But here's the problem. The problem is that both Jesus and this lawyer knew the impossibility of that lawyer and every one of us to perfectly keep this command. If the ability to inherit eternal life comes down to loving God with everything perfectly all the time and perfectly loving your neighbor as yourself, how many of us in here today qualify for that? How many of us in here are already disqualified and desperately in need? Okay, about six of you raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> we all know that we are disqualified, don't we? 
And this man knew that, and that's the reason why the Bible tells us that desiring to justify himself, he followed up that encounter with a question and then said, well then, who is my neighbor? And from there you know the story. This man traveling is attacked by robbers, beaten, left for dead. Three men come, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite choose to walk by doing nothing, but the Samaritan, a social outcast for Jews, comes by and sees the man, has compassion on him, and stops to help. Doing so at great personal cost, interrupting the course of his journey, using his own clothes as bandages, and putting the man on his own uh, animal and walking alongside of him in order to take him to an inn to help him recover and personally paying the rent out of his own pocket. And the Samaritan demonstrates for us a perfect example of the biblical compassion required to fulfill the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. He is the perfect example of the answer to the question of what does it mean to be a neighbor. And that's why Jesus says, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In other words, here's, what, here's what's interesting about the encounter. When the man says, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer and say, everybody is your neighbor. Instead, he tells a story and he flips the script and says, it's not a question of who am I obligated to call my neighbor. The question is, how am I proving to be a neighbor to others? That's what Jesus shows him. It's not about who am I obligated to show love to that fits within the confines of the definition of neighbor, but how am I demonstrating neighborliness to others? Jesus is in effect saying to the man through this parable that if you really understood the law, if you really understood what you've been, what you've been taught to parrot your whole life, that that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you really understood and believed that, you would have never had to ask the question, who is my neighbor? And the very fact that you have to ask that question proves that you don't understand what God is saying in His Word to begin with. He is helping this lawyer and us and his disciples to see that you and I do not have the luxury of personally defining how and when we will apply God's Word. We do not have that luxury. We are called to apply the commandment to love God and our neighbor in all situations and to everyone that we come into contact with. Which brings us to the main point of the parable, which is in your notes there, which is just simply summed up this way. Genuine gospel transformation is manifested by genuine gospel demonstration. That's the point of the parable that Jesus wants us to understand. Genuine gospel transformation is manifested by genuine gospel demonstration. In other words, the reality of the transformation of the gospel in our hearts is measured by how we apply it to those that God puts in our path. Because each and every day, those of us who have trusted in Christ, those of us who have believed the gospel, those of us who have been transformed from spiritual death into spiritual life, each and every day we are sent out into a lost, broken, and hurting world to encounter hundreds of people along the path. And how we demonstrate that to them is the manifestation 
of the reality of whether or not we actually believe it in our hearts. This parable is not given to humanity as a general principle that we should be kind and help people in need. I believe that that is embedded in us naturally as part of the image of God. I don't believe that you have to be a Christian or be transformed by the power of the gospel to understand when you see somebody who's been hit by a car, you need to stop and give aid. Or when you see somebody who's been beaten and robbed, that you need to do something about it. I believe that's part of the image of God within us to care for our fellow man. And so Jesus doesn't have to tell us a parable to remind us that we need to be kind and help others. This parable is a call that all who seek to be right with God spiritually, to be justified and have eternal life, that we must demonstrate that in the way that we apply it towards others. It's a declaration that if we have genuinely experienced a relationship with God through the transformative power of the gospel, then that must be manifested by gospel demonstration to bruised, broken, and hurting people that God places in our path. And we must be willing, like the Samaritan, to not be so preoccupied with getting on with the things that we need to get done that we are afraid to engage in those areas of our world where people are broken and bruised and bleeding. Genuine gospel transformation is manifested by genuine gospel demonstration. Now with that being said, quickly let me tell you three principles, three applications, three what I call life-altering lessons that stand out in this parable to me about how we demonstrate the gospel. Number one, all attempts at self-justification before a holy God are futile and dangerous. All attempts at self-justification before a holy God are futile and dangerous. I think one of the most dangerous verses in this, in this passage is verse 29 when it says that the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Many of us read over those words and don't pay much attention to them, but they are actually quite terrifying to see that a person, a fallen, sinful human being, would stand before the eternal Son of God and actually try to attempt to justify himself. I find this encounter between the lawyer and Jesus fascinating because it's the key to understanding the entire point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't stop one day to give His disciples a parable on being kind. Instead, He weaves a masterful story in response to a question asked of Him by a person with a cold, legalistic heart. And this man had several faults within His, within his approach. Number one, He wanted to test Jesus. We don't know His motivation for testing Jesus. Perhaps it was nothing more than a cold attempt by a legalist to trap Jesus. Perhaps it was a proud attempt to show intellectual superiority to this young up-and-coming rabbi. Perhaps it was a test to see if this popular young rabbi from Nazareth was really the man that people thought him to be. But for some reason or another, he thought, I'm going to test this guy and I'm going to ask him, what must I do to have eternal life? And I'm going to see how he answers it. Because he knew, as a person who was an expert in the law, exactly what the answer to that would be. Either way, he didn't come to Jesus with a sincere desire to speak to seek spiritual truth. Instead, he wanted to see if Jesus fit within his foolish personal religious understanding. 
And this is foolish for any of us because none of us can test the Lord God to see if we are comfortable with Him. Jesus Himself, when the devil tempted Him in Matthew chapter 4, quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And it is a dangerous thing anytime someone, individual, puts themselves in a position of authority to question the almighty sovereign God of the universe. But secondly, and more dangerously, not only did he try to test God, but he also tried to justify himself before God. He recognizes that he and Jesus agree about the necessity of obedience to the law. But the lawyer also knows instinctively that he has not perfectly kept the law. He knows that he hasn't perfectly loved God, and he knows that he hasn't perfectly loved all people. And so he tries to justify himself by arguing a finer point of the law about who actually qualifies to be a neighbor. As long as his application of the commandment to love his neighbor fell to the people that he felt comfortable with, then this man felt self-justified that he had done everything that was required of him. As long as I can define my neighbor by those people that I feel comfortable with, and if I've shown love to them, then I've done that. But he hadn't. And the commandment didn't fit into his personal moral justification. And it reminds us of the very extreme danger of trying to justify ourselves before God. Whenever we realize that our application of what God has said falls short of what He has declared, you and I then have two choices. Whenever the Spirit of God reveals to us in His Word what God says and we fall short of it, we are then faced with two choices. We can either stand before Holy God and try to justify ourselves by saying, yeah, but I really didn't mean it that way. Yeah, but I've done a lot of good things for a lot of people. Yeah, but I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, but God, I, I, I'm not as bad as, as, as that guy who went out in the Walmart parking lot and shot up a bunch of people. And We can try to self-justify ourselves before a holy God or whenever we realize that we fall short of what God commands, we can fall on Jesus Christ and plead for Him to be our justification. Because you can only truly be made right with God by trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you are always in danger spiritually when you try to conform God to fit within your preferences and justify yourself before a holy God with your personal goodness. I think it's a masterful story that Jesus tells because he's exposing this man's cold legalistic heart. So all attempts at self-justification before God are futile and dangerous. But secondly, another principle that we learn is that God's kingdom radically redefines what constitutes a neighbor. God's kingdom radically redefines what constitutes a neighbor. On the surface, actually, this man's question seems like a legitimate response. And while it does, it actually reveals how far the Jews in Jesus' day had twisted the word of God. If you do much background on this text, you'll find that the Jews in Jesus' day, had the, the rabbis and the teachers had come to interpret Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They had come to interpret this to apply literally to only fellow Jews. And so they felt like that the law only applied to them as Jews and therefore they were only obligated by the definition of Leviticus chapter 19 
to classify their fellow Jews as neighbors. That the law did not obligate them because the Gentiles and the people who didn't know God through the covenant of Abraham, that they didn't fit under that covenant, so therefore they didn't have the law, so therefore they didn't stand under the law to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Jews had come to believe that as long as they loved their fellow Jews, they had kept the law of Leviticus 19 and were not obligated to love the Romans that occupied their land or the Gentiles that lived amongst them or the half-breed religious people like the Samaritans. And so the Jews literally interpreted the command to love your neighbor as yourself to love those who were fellow Jews. And Jesus' masterful telling of this story not only shattered this man's perception, but in the entire misapplication of the law of Leviticus 19. It's not, it's not an accident that Jesus uses the priest and the Levite as people who neglected to show love and compassion. And it demonstrated that many of those who were respected for their piety actually fell short of God's requirements. Priests in the Jewish society were men who were responsible for ministering to people in the name of God, and yet this priest bypassed that opportunity, as did the Levites who assisted them in their task in the, in the temple. And Jesus intentionally inserts a Samaritan. Samaritans were geographical neighbors of the Jews. And because the Samaritans were part Jewish and, 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 and part Gentile, they were considered to be half-breeds and, and didn't stand under the covenant of Judaism by most Jews. There were centuries of animosity and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And yet here's a man that many Jews would have ignored or despised in the story doing the very thing that God required of someone who understands well the commandment to love God and love people. And what Jesus is telling us here is that in God's kingdom... You and I do not have the option of personally defining who is a neighbor and who is worthy of our love and our service in the gospel. You see, the kingdom of God radically redefines what constitutes a neighbor. The gospel does not afford us, this is in your notes, the luxury of defining our neighbors by our personal preferences or our comfortable boundaries. Let me say that again. The gospel does not afford us the luxury of defining our neighbors by our personal preferences or our comfortable boundaries. We see this on our television screens every day by the division in our world, by political ideologies, by racial lines, by ethnic backgrounds and religious preferences. And it's very easy in this fallen world to draw comfortable lines that define our neighbors as those who live on our side of the track, those who believe our religious convictions, those who share our biblical values, or those who share our cultural backgrounds. Because you see, the problem with sin is that sin divides us and sin creates categories that divide but the gospel unites us and calls us to see that all people created in the image of God are our neighbor. And all people created in the image of God are the object of the second commandment in our life. So when you go out to eat today and you encounter that Hispanic man or young lady who is waiting on you, 
You need to remember that they're not just a servant who's employed by a restaurant, but they're your neighbor who's been placed in your path by the Spirit of God. When you encounter that family this afternoon at Austinville Elementary School that doesn't live in the same neighborhood as you and share the same economic advantages that you do, you need to remember that they are your neighbor that has been placed in your path by the Spirit of God. We need to remember... While we may stand in certain political ideologies about the immigration problem in our country today, that each and every one of those persons that's crossing that border is a person who has been made in the image of God, who is worthy of our respect, who is in need of the gospel, and has been placed many times in our path by the Spirit of God. We need to be careful about how we draw personal preferences and comfortable boundaries to define what constitutes our neighbor. Because each and every person made in the image of God is our neighbor. We want to apply the love of neighbor to those who are easiest to love and most like us, but the kingdom of God does not give us that option because it radically redefines the definition of a neighbor to be any and everyone on this world whom God places regularly in our path. It's that coworker that really irritates you. <laughs> Who you don't know their story and you don't know their brokenness and you don't know what's going on, but they desperately need to hear someone who knows Jesus Christ and can tell them the hope of the gospel. Thirdly, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan vividly demonstrates more than anything else that it's what we do with what we believe, not what we say we believe, that really proves what we believe. It's what we do with what we believe, not what we say we believe, that really proves what we believe. Many people would say that one of the obvious applications of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that actions speak louder than words. And the truth of our devotion to God is not measured solely by the orthodoxy of our doctrinal statements. It's not measured by the number of people who gather in our worship gatherings on Sunday it's not what we say that proves what we believe, but it's, what, it's how we apply what God says to us in our everyday lives. This lawyer, this priest, and this Levite would have all been well-versed in the Scriptures. And they would have devoted their lives to keeping the religious customs of their day, most of which was grounded in God's Word. The problem was that their orthodoxy never translated into orthopraxy, and that their belief never moved to conviction and into action. And just like Jesus' question to the lawyer here, we must ask ourselves, how are we proving ourselves to be a neighbor to those in our community, in our city, in our workplace, and in our subdivisions? How are we proving at Central Park Baptist Church that we are good neighbors who love everyone that God places in our path? What tangible efforts are we undertaking as individuals in a church to love our neighbors in tangible ways that demonstrate the very gospel that we say that we believe every Sunday. And in your notes I put this, our neighbors need to see the gospel in our actions long before they hear it from our lips. It does no good to tell them the truth of what we believe if what the truth of what we believe is not lived out in our lives. So why are we gathering together at an uncomfortable, inconvenient time on a Sunday afternoon when many of us would rather be taking a nap to hand out school supplies to people that we wouldn't normally see? And why are we prayer walking at schools this afternoon? 
Because we're not just handing out school supplies to economically challenged children. But we have the opportunity to seek the welfare of the city in which God has placed us. And to demonstrate to those who are broken, bruised, and hurting the gospel of Jesus Christ. A verse that continues to speak to my heart, to which I've spoken to some of our staff about, and which has become a prayer of mine, is Jeremiah chapter 29.7. We were going to put it on the screen this morning. You can just write it down in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 29.7. You're going to see this verse much more in the months to come. When God was sending the people of God into exile into Babylon, he spoke through the prophet of Jeremiah, and he basically said, I know that what's about to happen is a bad thing, and it's an uncomfortable thing, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I believe that God has called us as the people of God to demonstrate Jeremiah 29.7 and to do everything possible as a church and as the people of God to seek the welfare of the city of Decatur where God has sent us. Because as the welfare of the city increases, the welfare of us as the people of God increases as well. We need to commit to being a church that loves and serves the city of Decatur. Because as a church, we can no longer engage in a primary strategy that invites unchurched people to come to us. Bless you, my friend. All of you that fell asleep, you just woke up because it's a very important point you need to hear. Thanks, DJ. Listen carefully. We can no longer engage in a primary strategy that invites unchurched people to come to us. If anything, the last 20 years has proven that that strategy in the evangelical church is failing. We cannot be content to say we have a good church, a beautiful sanctuary, a good worship service, and good ministries. So therefore, they need to come. We cannot say they pass by this church all the time and they see the sign and if they want to come, they can come in. We cannot do that any longer. We must seek the welfare of the city in tangible ways. And we must understand that the the success of a church is not measured by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. We serve a Savior whose mission was to seek and to save the lost. And that Jesus Christ is a seeking Savior who desires a seeking church filled with disciples who are committed to going and making disciples, not sitting and being good church members. People without Christ are not seeking to find the answers for their life from a church or organized religion. And that's not a a terribly bad thing. Because we don't want them to find answers in institutional religion. We want them to find answers in Jesus Christ. And so this is not in your notes, but here's what I want you to do today to put the word into action. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to to go home and read Jeremiah 29.7. And then I want you to do three things. I want you to pray. I want you to look. And then I want you to serve. So go home and read Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then I want you to pray this prayer. God, send me to someone this week who is broken, hurting, and needs to see the love of Jesus Christ. I promise you if you pray that prayer, God's going to do it.
I can't promise you God's going to answer every prayer you pray, but I promise you if you'll pray, God, send me to somebody this week who's broken, hurting, and needs to see the love of Jesus Christ. God's going to send them to you. But it's not just enough to pray. You've got to look. You've got to look for the need in your community. You've got you to go out, not just going through the course of your day, checking off your box of your to-do list, but going and intentionally looking for the broken and bruised people on the side of the road that need to see the gospel. And then serve in whatever capacity God opens up for you. And I promise you that if we will commit to doing those three things each and every week, we won't be able to keep people out of the doors of this church. Pray, look, and serve. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The time is long, and before we leave, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. And I said a second ago, we seek, we serve a Savior who came to seek and save the lost. The reason why we go and we look and we serve is not so that we can be good Samaritans, but because we go to follow the example of a Savior who understood that that our sin problem separated us and that we couldn't fix that on our own, so He came to seek and save us. So this morning, I know that there's probably somebody in here who needs to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. You've never trusted in the gospel. you never trusted Christ to be your Savior. You're just kind of doing the religious thing and checking the religious boxes, and the reality of it is, is while that may make you feel comfortable, it's not going to get you into heaven. You need to trust Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. And so in just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Maybe you need to come today to be saved. Maybe you need to come today because as you realize, as we've been telling this story today, that you look a whole lot more like the priest and the Levite than you do the Samaritan. Maybe you need to come today and you just need to pray to a holy God and say, God, send me out this week as someone to meet the lost and the brokenness in our community. And maybe you need to pray that today. Maybe you need to come because you need to join the church. Whatever it is, in just a moment. As we sing this song, we give you an opportunity to respond. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you didn't leave us on the side of the road when you encountered us, but God, you did whatever was necessary to bring hope and healing to our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to do the same to the community that you've sent us to. So now speak to our hearts today, Holy Spirit. Call us to action. Help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And Father, for those that need to trust Christ as Savior today, give them the courage and the the motivation to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song of response.